This whole series um, has been an attempt to think about the British economy um, after we leave the European Union, or, or indeed after 2019, because we have to think about the deeper problems of the UK economy. For those of you who've come to previous lectures, you'll know that I think there are a number of structural problems um, that the UK economy faces that haven't been addressed by successive governments. And in fact, uh, the problems that were stored up and had built up over a number of years could well be one of the things that explain uh, the decision taken by people, for right, the, the reasons that they perceived that must have been right to the, in their minds, in June 2016, to seek an exit from the European Union. It would have been nice, following that referendum result, if we'd had a, a very good, high-quality debate about what to do with our economy, in or out of the European Union, given the observations we have on the problems of the economy. But we haven't, um, and that's probably my fault, and your fault, and everyone else's for not getting involved in that debate. So the motivation for these lectures was, again, to expose these ideas at Gresham College to an excellent audience who come along to these lectures, but, but also more broadly, because they're videoed, and a chance to collect them into some thoughts that I hope um, eventually I'll turn into a, a book and some thoughts uh, about the UK economy. So I'm very, very much welcome personally the chance to explore these ideas with you. The lectures are also self-contained, which means that you can watch them in isolation as well as in sequence, and they will still yield many benefits to you on many repeated watchings. So I say that I hope you continue to look at them as, as time goes on. Um, I'm going to focus a little bit today on the problems of finance. I talk about that a lot, probably because it's my main area of research. Many of the problems are revealed after the um, global financial crisis. Um, and what we can see are a number of outcomes on the British economy, some of which I will talk through. And what we have to ask ourselves is to what extent we can blame finance. The outcomes are not ones that I particularly like. What's much harder to try and establish is the extent to which we can blame the financial system for them. We might, we might not. And what I want to do this evening is throw open some thoughts with you. I won't give you answers, but I'll drive you towards the question of whether we need a development bank in the UK. A development bank is something that's owned mostly by the state and maybe directs lending to particular sectors. And a lot of people find that idea very attractive. I'm not going to say this evening, unfortunately, whether I'm going to find it attractive or not, but let me just go through some of the ideas with you. And certainly in my final lecture of this series, I'll come up with some explicit thoughts as to how we might proceed as a country. So um, I was desperately looking for something that Julius Caesar might have said that made sense in the realms of finance, but it was, it was mostly about crossing bridges and um, doing other kinds of things that he did. But, but I, I remember this very famous quote by Winston Churchill in the year that we returned to the gold standard in 1925. The first sentence, I'm sure many of you would have heard before, I would rather see finance less proud and industry more content. Um, and, and often the remark is left at that point, and it's mostly motivated by politicians. The use of that quotation is mostly motivated by politicians who want to say, what we need to do is cut back on finance, reduce bonuses, and make sure that industry can get finance. That's the motivation when they use that quote. But the rest of it puts it into context. The fact that this island... I should say he's talking about Britain, uh, and its enormous extraneous resources is unable to maintain its population, is surely a cause for the deepest heart-searching. So he's saying this is a country which has excess supply of goods, and somehow or other, that excess supply cannot provide enough income 
for people to make most, most of their lives. And I want to argue that that is the heart of the financial problem. We need the financial sector to allocate resources to those who need them at terms that they can afford in a manner that leads to productive use of capacity in the economy, full employment of resources, and the, the employment of people's ideas in a way that generates income into the future. And I think it's something when we look at the UK, we haven't done consistently for a very long time. And indeed, that's why I turned to T.S. Eliot, is that however we've explored this problem, almost exactly from the moment of Churchill's quote through the Macmillan uh, investigation chaired by Harold, um, through to the Radcliffe Commission in 1959, through competition and credit control in 1971, with a sequence of credit deregulations very much affecting all of us in the city of London over the next 80 or 90 years, the answer was to liberalise finance further. That's the basic bottom line of the response to this. And yet, we find, after the financial crisis, the need to again regulate finance and ask, is it really delivering what we want? So in some sense, T.S. Eliot's metaphor for life, I think, or, or statement about life, turns into a metaphor for finance. We should not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. And just like Churchill nearly 100 years ago, I think the time is upon us again to think about the structure of finance in the UK. Um, let me go through some very simple um, diagrams. I, I'm going to warn you there are some diagrams, and I've been warned not to do this, some equations as well. But I, I will try to not make it too painful. If I can type them up, you can spend a few minutes with me listening with them. And, and there will be some points at the end, so just try to bear with me. But if you have to leave, the city of York is to the left as you exit from Gresham College. Um, so what are we doing? Well, in an economy where people are saving a portion of their income, they're more likely to save the interest rate is higher. So the, the savings schedule is upward sloping. And investment or borrowing or whatever we want to call it um, is more likely to occur at lower interest rates. So that curve is downward sloping. It says that on every investment that I might undertake, if I lay them from the most productive to the least productive, as interest rates fall, the next less productive investment becomes profitable to me, so I invest in it, so my investment schedule is downward sloping. But typically, we don't arrive at the point at where the two curves cross, because the people that we ask to intermediate, um, typically banks, um, need to think about the monitoring and screening of those that they're lending to and have costs associated with this activity that mean they have to charge a premium over the interest that they pay their savers on deposit. So RD is the deposit rate, and RL is the lending rate, and the spread, 1 plus theta, is this notional payment for the costs of intermediation, uh, which might also reflect the riskiness of lending. And, and so when theta is high, it might reflect more risk in the economy and less lending as a consequence, and when theta is low, it might reflect less risk in the economy and more lending. And what you can see is that this particular point, 1 plus theta, is going to determine, in some sense, the level of demand in the economy. If banks can do monitoring and screening in a more efficient manner, it's less costly, and banks think there's less risk in the economy, I'm now going to see which one of these is the pointer. What I want to see is that, clearly, um, if 1 plus theta is, is compressing, because risk is less, or banks become more efficient, the level of demand in the economy can increase because there'll be more investment given. The lending spread will compress. 
Alternatively, if there's more risk perceived in the economy or banks are thought to be less efficient, one plus theta will expand, that will move to the left, and the level of demand in the economy will fall. In some sense, then, the financial sector is the one determining, on the margin, the level of activity in the economy as some function of its ability to allocate the amount that we save back into the economy through investments. That's a closed economy example. So all the savings and all the investment occurs domestically. And we know that, in reality, a large amount of our marginal investment is sourced from overseas. And you can see there that interest rates would be lower. IW is lower than ID. And at that point, we exhaust the domestic supply of savings and we borrow from abroad. The same principles are at stake and the same world interest rate in which there may be a world risk rate, one plus theta, and that might compress or it might expand depending upon the nature of the world business cycle. But if we're borrowing from abroad, that marginal amount of funding is that which is lent to us in our economy and is going to lead to a current account deficit that we're not able to supply fully the amount of demand in the economy and we're accessing parts of it from overseas. And indeed, alongside this very process of financial liberalisation that I've mentioned in the, in the UK, what we've seen in the last nearly 40 years is a chronic deterioration in the current account position. So to go back to the previous slide, it's an increase, um, and this is relative to GDP, Almost year by year, the dotted line is a trend line. You could probably, the trend is whatever you think it to be, but this was an estimation. Um, but clearly there seems to be, well, certainly since the early 80s, there's been no positive year of current account deficit. That means in every year since 1983 or 4, we've borrowed from overseas and that we've imported more goods than we've exported from overseas. And to fund that, we've taken on uh, uh, debt from overseas. Um, now... We can interpret that as supply problems. We've got a certain level of demand in the economy. We're not able to supply the goods and services that that demand justifies, so we've imported the balance from overseas. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation is we're borrowing from overseas at the moment because we think we're going to be a lot richer in the future. And when we're a lot richer in the future, we'll run surpluses and pay back those debts. Um, hmm. That may not be the right answer, but it is one possible explanation of what we see. And so, we have an idea of finance being liberalised alongside the way that the financial sector is determining on the margin the level of demand in the economy, and if it determines it at a level that is above our capacity to supply, we might run current account deficits. In fact, the other problem the UK has suffered for a long period over this time, but not so much in the last 20 years associated with excess demand has been consistent inflationary pressure. But that's been, to an extent, um, sorted out for reasons I've discussed in earlier lectures uh, at Gresham. So we have some potentially chronic issues there. And I want to sort of think about how the banking sector is at a more um, disaggregated level allocating those funds. And what I want to explain is exactly the nature of the household problem and the way the banks allocate capital and what happens when it goes wrong. So the first column here is time from zero to time period eight. Second column is a household born in period zero. 
And let's imagine a simple household lives for three periods. Period zero, period one, period two, and deterministically and very sadly, it will die at the end of period two. Nothing you can do about it. No amount of money on the National Health Service will extend their life. That's it. But this household um, is going to be saving a third of its income in period zero, a third of its income in period one, and then in period two, it will be able to spend those savings as two-thirds of its income in any one period. So if you think about that, in every period it's spending two-thirds of its income, and then in the third period, those thirds that it's saved allow it to spend in the third period of its life without working. So the income over the three periods of life is two, but the expenditure in every period is two-thirds. In the first two periods of their life, they're saving a third, and the third period of their life, they're able to spend those savings two, of two-thirds. Now, in a second, you'll see what happens when households are born every period, but what I want you to just understand is exactly that process. The maturity of the savings are either two periods or one period. The savings that I make in period zero are saved for two periods, and the savings that I make in period one are saved for one period. No household is saving for more than two periods because it needs the money in period three because it's going to die at the end of period three. I'm not saying these households have any descendants at all. Just think of life without kids, how much better off we'd all be. No descendants, it's just the end. And, 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 and so the question is, if you're going to save in period one and, uh, and two of your life, or in this case, period T equals zero and period T equals one, who are you going to save your money with? You're going to put it under a bed or the bed or give it to a friend who you may not be able to find in two periods' time. In fact, if they're the wrong age, they may be dead. They have to be the same age as you, and there's only one household, so there's no one else you could really give it to who would necessarily be around. Or, in fact, it'd only be a generation that isn't born yet, so you won't be able to find them to give it to them. So all these problems mean, of course, that we place it with an institution. And the institution that we invented to place it with is called a bank. And here is the story. Here we have six different sequences of households, all living for three periods, all saving a third and a third in the first and second periods of their lives, and all consuming two-thirds in the final period of their life. None of these savings, or in a minute I should call them deposits, last for anything more than two periods. At most they're a two-period deposit, and half of them are one-period deposits. And so how can a bank use this money? Well, at a moment's notice, for a moment's thought, I should say, by looking across the line, you can see that in any period, from now until the end of time, there's always two units of savings. So in period two, the savings are provided by household one and household two. In period three, the savings are provided by household two and household three. They're different households, so there's a turnover in savings, some money going in, some money going out, but the stock of savings is always two. And that's the critical point for a bank. Those two bits of savings determine the quantity of deposits that the bank has at its disposal. In every period, deposits equals 2S. The bank, therefore, providing no failures here, and we'll talk about those in a minute, from now until the end of time, has 
to S to play with and can lend for as long as it wants. It doesn't not, it's not constrained to one or two period lending. It knows it can lend for 100 period if it wants to, providing we continue to be born. And we'll assume within this game that we are continue to be born. So B1 here is the bank in period one. It's only one bank, the bank in period two, or the bank in period three. And this, of course, is the heart of maturity transformation. The banks can take one or two period deposits and lend them for long periods, knowing that they will be continually funded by successive generations who will continue to conform to this process. Now, there's some well-known problems that then emerge. What if Households in period one lose faith in the bank and they turn up at the bank and they say, I don't trust you anymore, you're called Northern Rock. And I want my savings back. And the bank says, well, I can't do that. I've just lent it for 10 years to some people who've bought some rather nice property uh, in Dublin on the river Iffy, for example. Or Liffey. Is it Iffy or Liffey? Someone can tell. And the bank says, I can't give you the money back, it's tied up. Now, what's your reaction going to be if you knock on the bank's door and they say, I haven't got any money back? Are you going to be, you say, oh, that's fine. I'll walk away. Or, or you're going to say, hang on, I'm going to wait here and try and get some of my money back. Well, it's perfectly rational to say, I'm going to wait here and see if I can get my money back. It's not irrational at all. Um, so there have to be mechanisms to, to stop you wanting your money back. And a standard solution to this is for you to know that your deposits are guaranteed. And of course, I'll come to that later on, but if your deposits are guaranteed, you, you don't need to stand in front of the bank asking for your money back because you know the government will give you your money back if you require it. Now, that may not be a brilliant answer because if you've ever tried to get a refund from your train ticket, it's not very liquid. It can take a very long time and to fill in varied forms. So you may say, so it's not quite a perfect substitute, but it's not a bad substitute. So one way to deal with this problem of illiquidity is for the government to provide a guarantee on deposits so that we don't have to queue up every time a bank called Northern Rock springs into existence. But to return to the point, if in periods one and two, or in period one, let's take this period one for example, household zero is saving a third of its income, and household one is saving a third of its income, if the bank didn't recirculate 2S back into the economy, demand in the economy would be below its full employment level. Demand would be less than Y. The bank, by circulating those savings back into the economy, is ensuring that demand is as near to Y as it can be. And that's why I make the argument that banks determine the level of demand in the economy. It may not be the way that we always think about it, but it seems to me pretty close to a possible exposition of the truth. Now, I've talked about one set of problems that might lead to banks not being able to uh, help full employment to obtain. There's another set of problems, and they're to do with what economists call asymmetric information. I'm the bank. I'm holding these deposits, and I want to lend to someone else. I cannot have perfect information about that person. When they turn up at my bank and knock on the door, they're going to put their best suit on, brush their teeth, and give me a wonderful story about how they're going to pay me back. I should treat that information, certainly not with contempt, but with caution. 
to be a little bit uncertain about whether this person is really going to pay uh, me back. And indeed, um, there's a number of people who would argue that banks will only lend up to a certain quantity. Now, to understand this, let's look again at this form of supply and demand analysis here. And the demand curve is simply saying that as interest rates fall, I will demand um, more loans. And as interest rates rise, I'll demand fewer loans. And did you see that, the way the demand curve is sloped there? And the black line is a supply curve. And it says that as interest rates rise, I'm prepared to lend more to individuals. But it also might say there may be a limit, R star, beyond which I will not lend to an individual. Because I will think to myself, no matter how much of an expensive suit they present to me, and how much of a dazzlingly white smile, I shall say to themselves, if they're prepared to pay me something above our star, they must be doing something so risky, so uh, difficult, that I, I think that's not something I want to finance. It's something I'm going to be concerned about. It, the very fact that I'm prepared to pay such high interest rate is revealing to me something rather smelly about them, in a sense in which I'm not going to lend to them. So at that point, there may well be a constraint to lending. And one solution to this is to ask for collateral. If I say, look, if I'm going to lend you anything above max, or even up to max, I'm going to want some multiple of that in my pocket to provide backing against the loan that I give you. So in that sense, I don't need any private information about you. If I'm going to lend you £1,000, I'm going to hold £2,000 of your property against that loan, which I'll return to you when you pay me off, so I don't have to worry about finding about, uh, about your plans or your capabilities. That's all well and good, but what if you haven't got collateral? You're then excluded from lending markets. You might be a perfectly, and I'm sure I know that you are, a perfectly reputable person I should be lending to. You may have some very good ideas. You may be able to be the absolutely perfect person to run an entrepreneurial activity. And yet, if you don't have collateral, you won't be able to access asymmetric information markets. And that could well mean that the economy is not allocating funds to those who should be having it. It's allocating it more to those people who have collateral. And if we go further, if we imagine an economy in which there are large amounts of wealth inequality, and collateral is essentially tied down to the amount of wealth that you have, if wealth itself is something that's unequally um, distributed, then lending itself will tend to follow those who already have wealth rather than those with new ideas. Now, by itself, that's not necessarily a problem, only the extent to which the talent for entrepreneurship is correlated with initial wealth or not. It might be, it might not be. But if it's not, the lending process will further exacerbate wealth inequalities in the economy and, again, may not be leading to the best allocation of fundable, loanable funds across an economy. Another problem facing banks. Uh, OFI here is other financial institutes, but I want you to concentrate on Bank A and Bank B. Um, bank A has the retail deposits, these two uh, C's, that are, or two S's that I talked about earlier on. And, um, and let's suppose that you go to Bank A and you remove some of your retail deposit, but Bank A still has these loans in, in, um, to Dublin out there. That means the bank is not fully funded itself at the moment because you've removed some of its deposits. But the good news is you've taken your deposits from Bank A and stuck them with Bank B. This then means that Bank B is more than fully funded 
and Bank A is underfunded. And so Bank A can insure itself against that internal drain by going into the interbank market and saying, I just need a little bit of money. And Bank B will say, well, actually, I've got a bit too much money because the person who took it from you has put it in my bank, and therefore I'm going to borrow from you on the wholesale markets. And this is an interbank market that allows self-insurance to the banking sector, providing the shocks are specific to individual banks. Bank A and Bank B, all the way out to Z, can insure each other, providing the interbank markets can reallocate any liabilities that move around those markets from one to the other. That's fine, providing the banks think that each other, each other bank is going to be in existence at the end of the loan. Um, and uh, as a result... Uh, as a result of that trust, are willing to enter the interbank markets and lend to each other. That's not something that's happened particularly well since 2007. And to the extent to which that hasn't happened, or indeed, more problematically, as a general shock to the whole banking sector, we would then turn to the monetary authorities, the Bank of England and the Treasury, to provide lending to the whole system in the case in which liabilities were not sufficient to provide funding to the banks. We'll come to that problem um, a little bit later on. So, in a nutshell, we've thought about finance from the real economy side all the way up to uh, the actual structure of the banking market. The observations, the story so far. The UK has a persistent, chronic current account deficit. It implies or says that we've been borrowing from abroad. It might imply we're borrowing from richer future, but it might be telling us something about supply constraints in the economy, which I'll come to later on. That said, the net international investment position is about imbalance. The net international investment position is the accumulated assets and liabilities at home and overseas from this sequence of current account deficits. Even though we've had a sequence of current account deficits, the value of our assets overseas have appreciated in their own terms, in terms of market value, and as a result of um, depreciations in the exchange rates since 2016, to mean that we don't, on, on balance, owe the rest of the world very much money at all. So that's a fortunate thing at the end of this process. So I'm not um, so concerned about the net international investment position, but I think the, the sequence of chronic current account deficits is telling us something about the supply side of the economy. So to what extent, then, are the problems of the supply side of the economy a result of some failure to match savers to borrowers? To what extent might we ascribe those failures to asymmetric information, our particular way of dealing with that through collateral and property-based lending? Can we think of other ways of selecting by trying to understand potential borrowers in a different kind of way? To what extent are the problems might relate to network effects or externalities that the whole system tends to work together well or together badly? Is that something that we could break up with other kinds of structure, is a question to ask ourselves. How important is the need to hold liquidity uh, as a factor in explaining the uh, problems on the supply side of the economy? And might it be the case that because banks aren't holding sufficient capital, in fact, we'll see in a minute that the amount of capital they're holding has been falling over time, does that mean that they're not prepared to undertake the risky form of lendings that might be required to help the supply side of the economy. And, and finally, to what extent the fact that the central bank stands behind the system has also altered the nature of the banking system to act in a particular way that it might not otherwise act. These are 
extremely big questions uh, for us to consider. So let me start with a simple exposition, and we will have a couple of equations here, but it, there are pretty pictures afterwards, so just bear with me here. So let's take the central bank problem um, and think about the assets and liabilities. The liabilities is how a commercial bank funds itself through deposits and capital. That's the equity held by the owners in the bank. And capital can also be loss-absorbing. So if a bank loses money, it can be taken off the capital stock. So liabilities are L. Uh, mu is the fraction of capital held in the bank, so the amount of capital in the bank. The ratio of A to mu is bank leverage. You must have heard of banks being highly levered. That means A is very high relative to mu L. That's something we can, we've talked about in previous lectures. I won't talk about that too much today. And on the asset side, we can think of two types of assets. Liquid assets, so this could be T-bills or cash held at the till in the bank to deal with those idiosyncratic people who say, can I have my money back? The small amount of money. The more that we hold in reserves or liquid assets, the less we can lend out, the less of a profit we can make for a bank. So it's an allocation problem for banks. I could hold everything in liquid terms and then I wouldn't make any money to give people a rate of return that would give them the same amount of goods and services that they would require in retirement that they have when they're working. They need, there needs to be a positive rate of return to give people sufficient spending power later on in life. So this is the idealised bank balance sheet. And let's see what that means for bank choice. RL, as we've already looked at, is a multiple of the deposit rate. The deposit rate is that interest rate we pay people who put their money on deposit in a bank. So you could think of it, RD, as the cost of funding. I need the liabilities, the deposits in the bank to fund the loans, and what I pay people is RD. But what I'm looking to charge people when I lend them money is one plus theta. That's my spread to deal with riskiness and the cost of doing what I do. In any good balance sheet, assets equals liability, so I can substitute A for L when I require. Lambda is the fraction of illiquid assets. Illiquid assets are the ones that get, make you money. They're the ones that I'm lending to people in firms, in corporates, or on mortgages. So they're the ones on which I'm making a spread. That, that's the things I want to try and make as large as possible. Mu is the fraction of capital or equity held in the bank, and that's the paid-up element there. So what are the flow profits of a bank? Well, simply, they're the interest rate on loans times the amount of loans minus the interest rates on deposit times the quantity of deposits minus some fixed costs, which we'll assume are not bonuses or whatever they are. They're just some you know, rent, and IT equipment, advertising, sponsoring football matches, whatever it is that banks do these days. I have no idea. Well, I have, actually. That's a question all the time. Now, if we substitute the expressions that I have at the top into there, the profits are then the spread of the lending rate over the deposit rate times the fraction of assets that are illiquid that I'm lending out at profit minus the fraction of liabilities, but I substitute assets back in there because it's a little bit easier to play with that, um, that are deposits in the bank uh, times the cost of funding, RD in there, minus the fixed rate. So that gives me a simple expression there for the profitability of the bank. If I want to maximise it, I differentiate with respect to the size of the bank's balance sheet, set that to naught, and I get this nice expression that simply says the choice is on the level of capital, mu, 1 minus mu is 
um, the quantity of lending that is from deposits. Mu is the quantity of lending that's from capital. And the choice of the fraction of liquid or liquid assets will pin down the financial spread. So the bank itself will want to choose theta as some function of the quantity of capital it has and the quantity of loans that it makes. So that's just a choice for the bank. Now, it could be that theta can't be chosen by the bank. It might have to be set by regulatory conditions or competitively or as a result of the business cycle. So the extent to which it can't be set by the bank itself, the bank will be off equilibrium, at some level not maximising its profits. And that's a question perhaps for another day. Let me just take that expression that I've got there and carry on with it, just so we can remember it. So we've got some expression here that says that the spread the bank would like to charge, let's look at lambda, if I increase the quantity of, li of illiquid assets, the quantity of loans, providing they don't default, then I can reduce the, the finance premium theta. And that's the chart that I had earlier on. It's simply saying that if I can lend more to people, I can charge them less. That's what that's saying there. And if they can reduce their capital, then there's less pressure to increase the spread on activity. And that's another aspect whereby the, the quantity of capital that they have at their disposal will also impact on the optimal spread that they will choose. But then also note that the profits over the count of capital um, will fall if mu L increases. So even if I'm maximizing profits, if I increase the quantity of capital in the bank, the rate of return on capital will fall. So the bank will again be trading off two aspects in choosing its level of capital. It will want to have enough capital to deal with the possibility of losses, but not so much capital, so the rate of return offered to shareholders will fall and the price of a bank or equity will fall as well. So it would be interesting to see whether the pattern of changes in capital liquidity have any information content for the markup in the market. In the long run, let's remind ourselves of what's been happening in the UK. Is that banks have tended to reduce liquid assets, and that means increase illiquid assets. Lambda's gone up over time. Illiquid assets have fallen. Illiquid assets have gone up. So more of a bank's balance sheet is being lent out to people at high interest rates. That trend was reversed after the financial crisis where you can see that banks' liquidity has gone up somewhat to deal with the kinds of problems I outlined as a result of Northern Rock. And similarly, bank capital um, has tended to fall over time. So banks have stopped holding 30 or 40% of their liabilities as capital, and that's fallen to around 5% um, in the most recent period. Um, and a reduction in uh, bank capital has meant that more and more of the funding of banks has been through deposits, either retail or wholesale, which to some extent are costly and will tend to drive up the required external finance premium. But the two trends together, we might ask ourselves, as a result of them both falling, what's happened to the spread? Well, we predict that it would mean the spreads have been fairly constant. The two have offset each other. And 
not quite constant, but over the 40 years since the start of the uh, financial liberalization period, seems to be hovering both the mortgage rate spread over the bank interbank rate and the corporate bond rate spread over the bank interbank rate have been reasonably steady, suggesting that banks may be targeting a given markup when they lend to people. And that may mean if they're targeting a given markup, they may not be allocating funds according to conditions. They may just be saying whatever the borrowing rate is for them, they want a 1% margin above it, no matter what uh, the state of the economy is or what the quality of the individual may be. There may not be appropriate levels of differentiation by price or state of the economy out there. It's not anything like as cyclical as what one might have expected. <coughs> and so the question then is, where have banks been lending if they haven't been trying to find the individuals who need the money? Well, it won't surprise you to learn that a large amount of house of, um, I've given the answer away there, a large amount of lending has been to the household or property sector. In my previous lecture, we looked at um, the affordability of housing over the last two decades. And if we take a house price index from around 20 years ago and we base it to 100, we can see that by about now, it's not far off 400, about 350. Um, so there's been about a three-and-a-half-fold increase in house prices as more and more funds have been driven towards the housing sector. Now, in my lecture from last time, I also explained that one of the reasons house prices have gone up so much is a lack of supply and house completions, but also the demand side through extra finance available has also been part of the story. I refer you to my previous lecture for the full story here. And yet, at the same time, the earnings index has gone up from around 100 to 150. And the dotted line there is the point at which house price affordability halved, or the ratio of house prices to earnings doubled um, by around 10 years ago, and has hovered around there since then, suggesting that houses are now half as affordable as they were 10 years ago, and, uh, 20 years ago. And a large part of the reason is this increase in lending towards that sector that has made it more unaffordable or less affordable, might be better English. And a lot of these decisions stem from the factors I've just been talking about. Don't select on risk. Think about lending on the basis of collateral. Think about loans that you can make that will give you a reasonable or 1% return over your borrowing rate and generate profits for your shareholders. It seems to be a fairly easy machine for banks for the last 20 years to have carried out. So the question is, have they really been allocating to the people who require their lending. Let me back up that point about the stock of lending. The blue line shows you the stock of lending relative to household incomes. And you can see in the early period of liberalization, it was 20 or 30%. And um, sometime over the last 20 years, it crossed the 100% threshold. It went to about 120% at the time of the financial crisis and has fallen since then. But the stock of lending, uh, secured lending, to household income is around 100% today compared to a much larger fraction in the past. And that's telling you about this wall of capital that the banking sector has allocated to households rather than alternatives in the economy. Well, I say that as a value judgment, possibly rather than alternatives. Let me be fair to our friends in the banking sector. You can see large amounts of growth, particularly for, um, uh, if you go to the right-hand side, um, if you look in the period leading up to the financial crisis from 96 
through to 2006, rates of growth of 5, 6, 7, 8, up to 15% a year in the growth of secured lending to households. These are tremendously large increases. Let me be absolutely clear to you. The, the increase in households was not 15%. Very, very small increase in households over that period. So this is very much a quantity per household rather than an increase in households in that period. And all that said, we can go further along the same um, thought process and ask ourselves, okay, um, how much does uh, do house prices, if that's the asset that's been driven, also be explained as their variableness across the country by relative productivity in the country. So imagine productivity itself is some function of investment in the economy, some function of firms, some function of firms developing workers and their skills and getting them to employ and do things better through better management practices and transport links and confidence in the economy. All those kinds of things are the things driving relative productivity in the economy. And what we can also see is that if we take the nine planning regions in the UK and scatter relative productivity um, to the average of 100 so that the top right-hand side is London, where productivity is some 30% more than the average, of, uh, which in this case is, is zero, and the least productive areas are 10 to 20% below the average, and look at that against the increase in house prices over a 15-year period from 2013 to 2018, or was it 2012 to 2017, See that the relative difference in house prices is well explained by relative productivity, suggesting that if the lending had itself helped productivity in the different regions catch up to the average, there hadn't been the difference, we wouldn't necessarily have had the wide disparity in house prices we'd have in the country as well. So another aspect of lending that might be going on, it might be too concentrated in the south and the southeast, driving up house price differentials rather than, again, sorting out lending to different parts of the economy to try and equalise productivity differences. And some of these issues have been talked upon with the public policy analysis of the question of uh, regional policies or a, uh, uh, and also industrial policies to even up these productivity differences. But charts such as this demonstrate the extent to which things like productivity, which are, are some function of the supply of capital, are themselves helping to understand house price differences as well. And so this, this, this question mark about a lack of investment in the economy is further highlighted by these charts that I showed in the lecture prior to the uh, election last June. We looked at the level of capital employed in the economy relative to income and we see that that's been falling on a secular basis and investment growth um, on a sort of decade-to-decade -decade basis has been falling. Now, let's be clear about the capital stock. We might be under-measuring the capital stock because we may not be dealing with intangible investment particularly well. But certainly there doesn't seem to be any evidence of an increase in the capital employed in the economy relative to output. It seems to be falling. And investment growth at 2 or 3% is below the replacement ratio of the capital stock relative to output. That's why that's falling. And the fact that investment is only just above zero at zero real interest rates must be a further cause of concern and another question mark to be asked of our financial sector. 
The uh, labour productivity numbers that I talked about are really related to here, and here's the point uh, that, that backs up the, the uh, point about house prices, is that we look at the 100, which is the average across the country, we have two regions above 100, London and the southeast, and everywhere else in terms of labour productivity is below. So to the extent to which, only the extent to which productivity is some function of capital employed in the economy, some function of getting labour to act more efficiently and produce goods better, the financial sector doesn't seem to be evening out this production across the country. We're not bringing all the regions up. The financial sector seems to be concentrating in London and the southeast rather than everywhere. So it's a question mark to be asked of our financial sector. And if we look at the whole of the financial sector, it seems, again, to be one that has played a role in the overall productivity slowdown. This is a slide from a lecture I gave on productivity um, uh, last autumn. But what we're doing here is looking at the uh, nine, or nine or ten uh, different sectors of the economy um, and understanding their contribution to productivity prior to the financial crisis and then after the financial crisis. And what I want you to see is that GVA is gross value added, MFP is multi-factor productivity, is that prior to the financial crisis, financial insurance activities on average were somewhere between 2 and 3% per annum in their growth rate. They were positive. After the financial crisis, they've been negative of 2 to 3%. So I just want to say they certainly seem associated, I'm not saying they're causal, but associated with the productivity slowdown. And the, when we cross the y-axis there at minus two, it tells you that productivity growth has on average in the 10 years since the financial crisis been 2% below where it was before the financial crisis. And it seems to me that the activities, the financial insurance activities, may have a large part to play. But the causality is a question for another day. I just want to say it's definitely in there somewhere it seems to me, as part of the story. But that said, measuring financial sector output is questionable. The way we measure productivity or value added in the financial sector uh, is itself open to, I think, many question marks. We measure it by fees and commissions. Fees and commissions are going to be higher in a boom than they are in a recession. That's not necessarily measuring value added. Spread earnings. Earnings will be higher in a boom than it will in a recession. It's going to look like productivity has fallen. There's all kinds. In fact, for non-bank financial intermediaries, it's actual value of funds under management that seems to explain gross value added. Now, if the value of funds is high in a boom and low in a recession, it will look like financial sector productivity is playing a, a very important causal role. So I want to just attach a, a, a warning um, light to my previous statement that the financial sector may be driving things, I'm simply saying it's associated with it. We certainly need better measures of the contribution of the financial sector. And what we may have been doing, that said, prior to the financial crisis, is overestimating the contribution of the financial sector to the economy. Because it may have been doing easy things very well and very mechanically and engineering a large amount of money from it. What's another damning indictment of uh, where we are on the financial sector? Well, R&D expenditure, research and development expenditure, 
It's thought to be a very important cause of, of, uh, in, uh, of not only overall investment in the economy, but ultimately productivity. And this is as a fraction of GDP, so the UK lags well behind the G7 average over the 40 years of, or 30 years of, of financial liberalization. We're about 1.7, 1.8% compared to the G7 average, excluding the UK, so I suppose I could call it the G6, of uh, 2.4%. It may not seem like a large number, but year on year, differences of this magnitude will have material, excuse me, material impacts on income per head. And in general, around half of R&D is public and half is private. But somehow or other, our financial structure is not leading to sufficient development of research and development expenditure. One final table, and then I'll sum up. Further indictment, to some extent. I want you to look at SMEs, small, medium enterprises. This is the stock of external finance provided to UK businesses um, around two or three years ago. It's 164 billion. That's around a tenth of the stock of loans held by households against their properties. So we tend to lend 10 times more to households to buy their houses than we do to people setting up small and medium-sized enterprises. That may be fine. It may be fine. I think my value judgments here would, uh, may be implied. It may be something that's also a problem if we think that's where we are as an economy. Now, the financial sector overall had very large degrees of support after the financial crisis, recapitalization of a number of our banks, increasing the deposit insurance scheme that I talked about when we, we thought about Northern Rock a few minutes ago, um, some nationalization of, of banks, a special liquidity scheme, credit guarantee scheme and asset protection scheme. So clearly, in crisis times, the government has to have sufficient fiscal backstop to support the recapitalization of the banking system. That's one form of involvement in the financial sector. And the government is moving away from that as the recovery itself and the time since the financial crisis uh, increases. Um, these are things that we're slowly moving away from. But I'm pointing out that from time to time, the government will have to come in and support the financial sector in a particular way, as we saw during the financial crisis. So what are the economics issues? Well, lending looks heavily property-based, either because of collateral problems or our preference for holding housing in the UK. As I said in my previous lecture, the housing sector looks overweight in housing wealth, some five trillion of housing wealth in the UK. And the stock of loans secured against housing is about 1.7 trillion, um, about the same as household income, one for one. There seem to be, as an economy, significant regional distributional issues. Productivity is unequally spread throughout the economy. Regional productivity is also um, poorly spread throughout the economy. In aggregate, the capital stock is low. Investment looks low, even though I've got to say they're both very hard to measure. In an economy, it's increasingly digitalized. So a large part of the shortfall might well be our economy is increasingly doing things in a different way. But so are all the other economies in the world. So relatively speaking, we're still looking worse off across these dimensions. But we're trying to do a lot more to measure these things. And in fact, there's a centre at the National Institute, the Economic Statistics Centre of Excellence, funded by the 
ONS trying to do a better job of measuring these parts of the economy. But that said, even relative to other economies, our productivity levels also seem to have fallen short. And so we need a way of establishing a direct link between those outcomes and the financial sector. Now, my lecturers try to persuade you that the financial sector determines the level of output, but what it does ultimately is subject to informational constraints, network externalities, it can't self-insure itself, it needs liquidity, it needs capital, it cannot necessarily always get us to the highest level of output without government support. And overall, productivity in the sector seems to have fallen following the crisis. So it might be argued to be a sector that might need a bit more help. But it's had a lot of help already, hasn't it? So what's the case for a development bank? I'm not going to persuade you that the case has been made. I'm not even sure of it myself. But let me just sort of outline what a development bank is. It will be wholly government-owned or have a significant capital stake by the government. If it were owned by the government, it could be directed to invest in particular areas, to SMEs, for example, startups of a particular sort, or even venture capital. It could make it, it could be called the Dragon's Den Bank, for example. Such a bank could have a regional bias or flavour. It could be called the region, London, uh, the Liverpool Development Bank rather than London Development Bank. That's just kind of ideas that could be floated out there. But here are the questions. We don't want to subsidise the loans, so the projects that it finances must be able to provide a market rate of return. How are we going to otherwise do it? Who's going to judge uh, whether the project was feasible if it doesn't make a market rate of return? So at some point, this idea only floats if the current financial system is not delivering loans to people who can make a market rate of return, which would be an odd state of affairs in a capitalist economy. Why would it be that they're not? Is it the case that they only lend to people who are members of the same golf club? Or do they go out and look for people who can make that market rate? So there must be a further rigidity out there in information that means that the current banking system is not allocating capital to people who can provide a rate of return. I don't think we should be arguing for subsidised lending because, again, that leads to queuing and lending to people who are known to the lenders. I think it's something we want to avoid if we can. Could it be the development bank could emphasise the screening and matching function that a commercial bank can't. Maybe a commercial bank um, is going to do this in a relatively mechanical manner. Maybe the development bank could be encouraged to do a, a deeper dive into the qualities of a potential borrower and do a better job. That, could that be one aspect of what it could do? Indeed, a British business bank was set up in 2012 with around a billion pounds of government funding and I think has an asset size at the moment of around 10 billion, which is about half a percent of GDP. Bank assets in the UK are about six times GDP. So it's a fairly small player at the moment, but I naturally wish it well. Could it be that the macroprudential instruments that I've talked about in previous lectures and the centralised rules of modern banking, you know, there are algorithms you've got to go through, your age, your sex, what car you drive, where you live... Um, how much your last credit card bill was, what your utility bill is, and then there's the answer. Gamma to the power of three, you can have the loan, you can't have the loan. It could be that these average algorithms don't allow those of us who are more idiosyncratic but nevertheless perfectly good risks from accessing finance. It could be there's something wrong with those average algorithms. They may not be helping 
those in different regions and in different areas or with the wrong accent or those who can't play golf. I don't know. Could be problems out there. By the way, I can't play golf. So what we need to do before we get in a development bank is to identify shortfalls in lending independently of the state of the economy. One of the really difficult problems with thinking about the level of loans, whether it's to SMEs or households, is how much of it is conditioned by the state of the economy, which may be good or may be bad, and how much of it is genuinely a function of the supply curve of finance. This is a very hard identification problem. And these are the kind of proofs we may need before we go further down the route of a development bank. But I want to tell you I'm concerned about some of the outcomes that I see, but I'm not convinced that we need a development bank immediately. Now, it's been a rattle through many issues of finance there. I hope you were able to follow all the arguments. I almost followed them all myself while I said them out loud. But I want to just thank you for coming. Thank you for listening to me this evening. Do come along uh, to my final two lectures. It's been nearly a four-year slog, and I've loved every minute of it coming here to Gresham. But in the next two lectures, I'll go further and start to make some proposals, as well as just ask you some questions. Thank you very much.